Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the inaugural post for New Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Allen Smith, your host and currently a history graduate student at the University of Georgia. First off, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we'll pick a newly published book in American Studies and spend the better part of an hour speaking with the author. Our first guest is Dr. Peter Charles Hoffer, Distinguished Research Professor of American History at the University of Georgia. The subject of today's discussion is Dr. Hoffer's recent book, Cry Liberty, The Great Stono River Slave Rebellion of 1739. The book, published in 2010, is part of the Oxford University Press New Narratives in American History series. The book's topic, an 18th century slave rebellion, may seem rather specific for a broad channel like American Studies. But as you'll hear in the interview, The story of this particular rebellion, and more specifically the way it has been retold by previous historians, has a larger significance worthy of discussion. Dr. Hoffer's retelling of the event offers a refreshing argument for the importance of examining historical contingency. That is, how unexpected occurrences can and often do shape history and the history that we write. The discussion also explores the historian's craft. What makes good history? Why has the story of Stono been retold in the way that it has? And if the often told story in textbooks and monographs is partially fallacious, why has it enjoyed such sustainment? Thank you, and I hope that you enjoy our discussion. Professor Hoffer, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Today we're discussing your new book, Cry Liberty, the Great Stono River Slave Rebellion of 1739, out in 2010 from the Oxford University Press as part of their New Narratives in American History series. I'd like to start first, and perhaps make this a regular segment on the podcast, by asking, what brought you to this project? Uh, What is it about the Stone Rebellion, of which there is much scholarship, that caught your attention and inspired you to re-examine the event? But before you answer that, could you please provide a brief summary of the rebellion? The rebellion began on a Saturday night in Horse Savannah, which is about 10 miles away from Charleston. It's still there. It was going to be developed as a housing estate, and the housing boom collapsed, so you can still drive by the savannah. Uh, Slaves were working in the savannah to ditch it in order to create arable land for rice growing. The whole of the Carolina low country was dotted with these vast rice plantations, making the owners of the plantations some of the richest men in the world. They had uh, large numbers of slaves, many of them recent immigrants, some from Angola, others from elsewhere. Um, This was a slave labor group. They were not supposed to be working on Sunday, but the state, I'm sorry, the colonial laws 
allowed in exigent circumstances for um, the supervisors, the overseers, to work the slaves on Sunday. So it was um, early September, it was hot, it was muggy, these slaves were already overworked and they were certainly grumbling. Now, the conventional story is this, that these were Angolans, that they were formerly warriors, that they had been plotting a rebellion, and that they used this occasion, this Saturday night, to um, break into a storehouse of arms, kill the guards, um, put their heads on stakes, um, and then take the arms and ammunition and rouse the countryside and march to Spanish Florida, which had promised freedom to slaves who escaped from the British colonies. This story is plausible, and it's the story, as you said, that uh, appears in all the scholarship textbooks and so on. It's wrong. Okay. The only slaves who were around out that night were this work group, and I have discovered that by working through the, the legislative records and also by working backwards from the, um, the night of the rebellion, what happened in the night of the rebellion. More than likely what happened was they crossed over the bridge, over the Stono, and they intended to break into not a storehouse, it was a store. Hutchinson's store was a place where the local planters could buy all of those baubles of the English Empire that were imported into Charleston and then spread out into these stores. They assumed that the store would be empty. It was nighttime. The stores didn't stay open late hours. What they intended to do was not steal arms and ammunition, but get to eat and drink after a long day of working hard. They surprised not guards, but one of the planters and what may have been their overseer who had left early and a fight ensued. Now, for a slave to raise a hand against a free person, particularly one of the planters, was a capital offense. Right. So what started as a surprise affray became the killing of, they had to, mm -hmm. because if they were caught <clears throat> even fighting, they would be executed. They had to kill these two white men. Some of those slaves, the slave um, group uh, was probably 20. That would be about Originally, right. the slave group that broke Only 20. Okay. Or so. A few of them must have said, whoa, goodbye, and headed back to their plantations, hoping to just disappear into the slave quarters, and probably did. Another group of these slaves, possibly Angolans or others, um, headed for the nearest wharf, because many of these slaves were fishermen, or boatmen, right. and so they were very familiar. Steal a boat, either escape to Florida, or they didn't know how wide the Atlantic was, go back home. When they reached the, the Godfrey Wharf, and again, the only way you know this is by following one of the few primary sources that actually exist that tells you the order in which um, they attacked the planters' houses. And the, the Godfreys were not wealthy planters. They were freeholders. Um, and again, instead of being able to steal the boat by accident, perhaps the dog woke the family, they ended up killing him and his wife and their child. 
Now there was no going back. Right. So now groups of them began to break off onto John's Island and try to um, raise a rebellion in a way to sort of cover their tracks. Now the conventional story, again, is that they had planned this, and so they marched down the road, the King's Highway, not really a highway, more like a, a dirt road, by the way, which is still there as a dirt road. And if you walk down it, uh, the uh, Jacksonboro Road, if you walk down it, you can still see um, the impressions of bare feet in the, uh, as the kids run up and down it now. Um, you can see the bare feet in the, in the dirt. Um, the major road from Charleston to Savannah has bypassed uh, the Jacksonboro Road. In any case, by this time, the conventional story of a slave uprising makes sense. Okay. The, but what had happened was that, yes, they marched down the road early in the morning as dawn broke. They had a drum, they banged it, um, they made a flag, they tried to get slaves to join them. By the way, only a few did. Um, many either just hid themselves or even helped their masters to escape. Um, what historians have done is they've taken this story and read it back right. into the um, nighttime and the evening. That's right. In your introduction, you um, say that other historians may have fallen victim to the logical fallacy of, as you call it, post hoc ergo propter hoc, uh, and that's essentially what you're describing, is it not? Yes. Um, and does this happen more often than it should in the historical profession? If we had more first-hand accounts, the only first-hand account that we have is Lieutenant Governor Bull, who comes across this column um, late in the morning. He's returning um, from a visit to the south, um, he sees them coming. He's riding with a number of gentlemen. They first think that it's a, a, um, a slave work gang going home. They realize that it isn't, and they take off in all directions. <laughs> all right? Um, Bull's responsibility as lieutenant governor is to protect the, the colonists against a slave uprising. So here he is riding off on his horse and so on. It takes him three weeks to write an official report of what happened. And you can see he's trying to figure out how to spin the story so his rapid departure from the scene doesn't look so bad. Interesting. One of the gentlemen who was with him uh, rode down the road to um, a local church where the militia was, um, had gone to worship. Um, and um, they were, by law, required to take their arms with them. They also had their horses outside of the church. So they were able to go up the road, and they were there, in effect, um, ahead of the slave column, the slave rebels marching column. Um, part of the literature is why did the, um, the slave rebels lose in a pitched battle to this relatively small militia group? Um, and the answer that locals gave was that the slaves were dancing and singing and getting drunk. But in fact, what I found, simply by looking at the geography of this, was that the militia had entered the um, Jacksonboro Road ahead of, because of where they were, ahead of the slaves. So the slaves had stopped waiting for stragglers to come in, hopefully to recruit more rebels. And the militia were able to come at them from a direction the slaves didn't expect. So it was like an ambush. It was 
Well, it was it was sort of uh, an ambush. It would have been an ambush if the slaves had walked into the militia. Um, it was more like a raid, a very successful raid. Some slaves stayed and fought. Some fled and were recaptured and summarily questioned and then executed. Um, for me, the, the, the interesting part of the story was um, the legal part of the story. Um, other suspected slave rebellions resulted in trials. Even in South Carolina, where you had rumored slave rebellions, um, there would be a regular trial. Right. Um, after which the usual suspects would be executed. Um, this time, no trial. So we didn't have a trial record. A trial record enabled me to write about the slave rebellion in New York in 1741, and where historians decided there was no slave rebellion. If you read that record correctly, and you weighed it against the sort of evidence that you would if you were a juror, you would see that there was a slave rebellion in New York in 1741. Right. The slaves were quite capable of raising rebellion, of planning and plotting. But Stono only became a slave rebellion early in the morning. At night, it wasn't. It was a series of, of horrific and unexpected accidents. Okay. Um, well, still, I, I still want to sort of talk about the sources because um, it does seem that there are relatively few sources. Like you mentioned, Lieutenant Governor Bull uh, is the only written account, first-hand account, that we have. So how have other historians written about this? What sources did they draw from? I know that there were newspaper articles that talked about the rebellion. What's the problem with those sources? Well, the, the newspaper articles that talked about the rebellion were not from Charleston. Okay. Um, one of the uh, aims of the South Carolina colonial government was to attract white settlers. If news of a, a, a slave rebellion involving hundreds of slaves and resulting in the death of dozens of whites got out, it would put <laughs> severe crimp into the effort to recruit other white settlers. So there was a kind of a news blackout, a cone of silence <laughs> descended. Um, the newspaper articles are from London, from Boston, they're about as far away as you can get from Charleston. So um, someone in Charleston wrote to um, someone in Boston, someone in, um, in London, and then they would uh, talk to an editor of one of the newspaper accounts, and you get this third-hand hearsay account. Right. Um, the closer you come to the events, the closer you come to the people involved, the greater the silence. Geographically speaking. Geographically speaking. Okay. Interesting. And speaking of <clears throat> geography, I noticed in the beginning of your book, uh, you actually visited the site of Stono, um, trying to find where the historical markers should be placed. Um, I think this is part of your greater effort to explore sensory history, as you call it. Is that right? Well, it's, it's, it's um, one of my major projects is to explore the possibility of a sensory history. Uh, Europeans have done it. Alain Corbin in France... Um, David Cressy for England and others. Uh, we've talked about soundscapes. Um, my uh, interest is more in the visual. I think primarily we learn about ourselves and our world visually. Uh, Mark Smith, for example, in South Carolina is more interested in soundscapes, how, um, 
how the world sounded. So it's a project that a number of historians, we even have a journal that's published in Toronto, uh, a journal of sensory history. So I think if you're going to write a story like this, you have to walk the what the, what the English used to call beat the bounds. You have to walk the land. Um, I did research in uh, Columbia and in Charleston and, and elsewhere at various times, but I tried to go uh, to the low country, to the part of the Stono where the high bridge is now, where there was a low bridge, and just uh, walk it at the exact same time, the exact same part of the year that the rebellion occurred. And I swear the same noceums, the same skeeters, the, the exact same bugs are still there. Uh, the exact same torrential rainstorms, the exact same incredibly hot and muggy weather. Um, and imagine yourself digging uh, ditches um, in the mud, surrounded by these swarms of insects, particularly as twilight comes, um, how hungry and thirsty you will be. And the overseer has wisely taken off, and there you are. You're supposed to go back to the quarters of your own plantation. But just across the river is this store, and you've been there because you're, uh, you've been there with your master, even for your master, and you know what's there, all the delights, <laughs> a veritable Eden, so that's going to draw you. But when they decided, finally, that they were going to put a marker up for this, because um, if you go back South Carolina, um, antebellum South Carolina, this is, they're not interested in celebrating slave rebellions. So finally, in the, in the 1970s, they decided they want to put up a, a marker for this. African-American history has become important um, in South Carolina. South Carolina, as we know, particularly coastal South Carolina, the low country, had a majority of blacks, a huge majority of blacks, 10 to 1. Um, so they, they don't know where to put this marker up. And <laughs> the, the marker is going to say where the Stono Rebellion began. Now, in fact, it should be on the road because that's where the rebellion begins. But the marker says this is where the, the storehouse was. So it's in the wrong place. Okay. It's where a tavern was that some of the slaves stopped at, and they did not kill the tavern keeper because um, at least one of them uh, knew him and probably had illicitly gotten alcohol from him. So if, if one of the slaves said, no, don't touch that guy, then they would pass by. That tavern site is now occupied by a, um, oh, what do they call it, uh, topless bar, okay. I guess you'd call it, for truckers. Um, on the main road from uh, Savannah to Charleston. So um, across the way, they put the marker. But in fact, you have to go um, farther back toward Charleston along the river, where under the high bridge now, there was a bridge. That's where Hutchinson's store would have been. And I went around looking for other store sites, mm -hmm. um, some of which uh, either the state... Um, Historical Commission or the National Park Service has either restored or uh, found the foundations of, and they're always by the water, and they're always by a part of the water where there's a bridge or there's a navigable wharf, and that's not where they put them. <laughs> they, they put the historical marker in the wrong place. So I, I corresponded with the, with the uh, commissioner 
who had who was responsible for it. And, uh, I didn't say it's in the wrong place. I said, well, how did you decide on that place? And what they did is they asked Mark Smith. <laughs> and Mark Smith was a young historian and who's written about this, collected documents and everything else. Um, he helped them put it in the wrong place. So if Mark Smith is listening to this podcast, his work is wonderful, but the mark is in the wrong place. Right. But, and to be fair, though, it is relatively close. And if you do visit the marker, you're still getting a sense of what it might have been like to uh, be in the general vicinity of Stono. Um, actually, the mark is on the other side of a bridge um, along this road. The, the bridge is over a creek. Um, and on uh, the far side, the creek feeds into the, uh, the Stono River. The, um, the far side of the creek is a marsh. So this is, you sort of get the idea, oh, they came out of the marshes. <laughs> sort, of, um, sort of like uh, one of those horror movies where there's a marsh monster. Uh, no, they didn't come out. <laughs> but the, the marker itself is wrong. It says that you know, these were Angolan warriors who decided to raise rebellion and so on and so on. So. These were thirsty slaves. I was afraid that when I, when I published this, people would say that um, I was undermining a story which historians were beginning to tell about brave African warriors who had risen up in rebellion. Um, this is the story that you now find in, um, in most of the textbooks. Still and today. It, I'm sorry? Still today. Still today. Oh, no, I haven't. Um, it, takes, it will take years, if ever, for my book to change what is written <laughs> in textbooks unless I write the textbook myself. Um, so I was, I was afraid that people would say I was undermining this, and I didn't mean to undermine it. I simply meant to locate this in the actual lives of actual slaves who did get hungry, who did get thirsty, who were abused. I mean, these slaves knew that they weren't going to get Sunday off. Slaves all over the colony were going to get Sunday off. Not these guys. They were going to be back in that same ditch. So, by undermine, you mean... Um, Decenter. Or play Relocate. down their sense of agency. Yes, I would be taking away the agency, which historians, uh, African historians like, uh, like John Thornton, and um, American historians like Mark Smith, and most, <laughs> most importantly, Peter Wood. Sure. Because it's, it's Peter Wood who ends his wonderful book, Black Majority, with the Stono Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And it's Peter Wood in the 1970s um, who was very much involved in the sort of academic side of the civil rights movement. It's Peter Wood who writes a story about these brave Angolan warriors who've had enough, and they rise in rebellion. And when the rebellion is crushed, um, it's a victory for the forces of evil. It's a, it's a very powerful story. Um, and it's, if you, if you, there's one key piece of evidence that he didn't look at. Let me go back at that. Sure. And this is a little complicated story. When the proprietors gave up the colony, all of the land titles based on their grants to holders came into question. So what the South Carolina royal government did is they provided for the creation of memorials. And you could go and get a memorial which confirmed your proprietary land grant. By hiring the colonial surveyor, it was sort of a patronage deal for the colonial surveyor, he'd come out and draw the boundaries of your land. 
South Carolina Department of Archives and History has all of these memorials. So we, by looking at them and sort of putting them together in a um, uh, kind of jigsaw puzzle, you can see where people lived. Okay, So I know where each of the people, in order that the slave rebels killed, I know where they lived. So I know that they didn't go out on the Jacksonboro Road, the okay. King's Highway, right away. I know that they were wandering around John, uh, John's Island for a while. Okay, right. So that told me that this didn't begin as a plan to go straight to Florida. Because if you wanted to go straight to Florida, you wouldn't wander around John's Island. You'd head down the road to Florida. Right. Interesting. So that, that started me thinking, because I teach Peter Wood's book. And um, I was using the work of these people, and, I, and they're absolutely first-rate historians. I started saying, what's going on? And that's when I started working back to look at, well, what slave gathering existed the night before this happened? And the only one I could find was the work gang in Horse Savannah. So I, you know, sort of putting those pieces together, I now had an alternative to the story mm -hmm. that Peter Wood had told and others had told. Parenthetically, I should say that um, I ask a lot of people to, to read the manuscript. Um, and uh, uh, Max Edling and uh, uh, Olwell and um, uh, Phil Morgan, who knows more about this than anyone, and, I, and they were all wonderful and they corrected lots of errors. I'm sure there are some that still exist. Um, and I asked Peter Wood, who, was, um, who has the same Ph.D. Uh, dissertation advisor that I had, Bernard Balin, I asked Peter Wood if he would read it, and he declined. Because I told him what was in it. Right. And, then, <laughs> and then Oxford University Press offered to let him read it for a blurb, and he declined. Interesting. But well, what's he declined graciously. <laughs> what I find fascinating, though, is that it almost seems as if if we're going to give uh, the slaves uh, agency, uh, some historians would almost hinge that agency upon whether or not it was premeditated or not. And is that necessarily, um, well, well, is that necessary? I for mean, me, the, imp the, the two important concepts that I find over and over again are contingency, that, that you know, things just happen that we don't plan, and irony, that we things we do plan don't turn out as we expect them. So between contingency and irony, that seems to me to be, uh, they, they seem to me to be stronger narrative uh, conceptualizations than agency. You can't confer agency on someone in the past. They, everyone in the past was a human actor. They had choices, uh, and we know they made them. Uh, some had a very narrow spectrum of choices. Some had a broader spectrum of choices. Slaves could raise rebellion. They could strike at their masters. They could run away. They could commit crimes against one another, more often than not, or against uh, um, free persons. Um, they did all of those. The, the, the challenge for me is to find out what most likely happened. And what mostly happened seems to me to be a tale of contingency of a series of unplanned for accidents um, compounding one another. Uh, of course, you know, the, 
the low country with all of the slaves um, forced to labor is a, you know, a time bomb. Uh, the remarkable thing is that this is the only large-scale rebellion. Now, it's true that um, uh, the white authorities, they had patrols, the militia was armed, they went armed to church. Um, so, I guess... Um, so, it is an oppressive regime. Sure, and, and I'd like to ask you uh, if you could speak about the legacy of the rebellion in the immediate years following it. Well, again, the traditional historical story is this. The, the legislature has been tinkering with revising the slave code. After the rebellion, the traditional story is they come together and they toughen it. All right, they clamp down the oppressive regime even tighter. Well, if you go and you actually look at the revisions that they made, first of all, they're not very different from the earlier slave code. And second of all, all of these loopholes Slaves were still allowed to trade for their masters in the marketplaces. Masters were still allowed to hire out their slaves. Slaves were still able to be boatmen and fishermen because the system doesn't work unless you give a certain amount of autonomy to certain slaves. Slaves are still acting as, in effect, overseers on certain plantations. Um, they're called drivers later, but I mean... So, um, you cannot clamp down, you cannot turn it into a concentration camp, because you need willing laborers. Rice planting is very difficult, it requires a lot of skills, it also requires a lot of backbreaking labor. Um, I went on a trip at the, at the Middleton Plantation where they show you how rice is, rice is grown, and um, it really is a difficult, difficult task to know when to flood, to know, uh, to repair floodgates and everything else. The, um, so you just you couldn't clamp down. So the story after this, they clamped down. It's just not true. Mm. Interesting. However, there is a legacy of fear. And that legacy results in two absolutely opposite responses. One, you never get um, the kind of trust that you had before the rebellion until the antebellum period. What do you mean by trust? A kind of um, willingness by certain masters to believe that slaves were, were good. Um, uh, there are many masters' diaries that say how good the slaves are. That disappears after. Okay. But second, a sort of willful forgetting that this ever happened. So when the Tocqueville travels through the low country and he talks to people, they will not talk about the dangers of slave rebellion, even though he brings it up. He says it was a taboo subject. Obviously, people are thinking about it. They're not going to talk about it. So this picture that we have in antebellum South Carolina, sometimes called Moon and Magnolias, right. you know, of, of happy darkies and benevolent masters and so on, is wrong on both of those accounts. Um, this is the legacy of Stono, and it, it sort of carries in to the culture. Now, there's another legacy of Stono that's very hard to trace out. It's the legacy of Stono among the black folks. Everyone knew someone, everyone who lived south of, um, and west of Charleston, because, you know, um, the road from Charleston to Savannah is not south. It's actually southwest, right? 
So everyone who lived south and west of Charleston knew some of the slaves who were involved in this. And they, they take traditions of storytelling, of oral, you know, of folklore, and they build um, this rebellion into them. Um, as Charles Joyner talks about the way in which they uh, um, uh, created uh, these kinds of stories. Down by the riverside? Yeah. Uh, he, has a whole ch- he has a whole chapter on it. And um, I, I think he um, tends to particularize it maybe a little too much. He makes them African. But storytelling is storytelling. So these, um, uh, these slaves become heroes um, who warn their families who then go out on this very dangerous adventure and they don't come back. Or some of them, and this is actually true, some of them manage to evade the patrols, get back, and convince their masters that they weren't involved. All right, and they are the ones who can become the storytellers of this. So gathered around in that circle um, at night um, or uh, on a Sunday evening uh, when they've spent the day uh, celebrating the Sabbath, um, they tell these stories, and the stories have passed down, and um, they're completely different from the stories that the officials told. In a way what the historians who've heroicized the beginning of the event have picked up is the, is the African folk story. That's very interesting. Well, I have an essay on sources and the way that sources are, are used and developed because we wanted to put this book in the classroom. Right. And so part of what we wanted to do was to teach students how historians build their account from primary sources. Interesting. And have you used it before in the classroom? Or... Spoken with people who have. Um, I've used it in the I've used it in the classroom and gotten a good response. Um, students students love the um, the story of what happened at night, right. with the moonlight and the lanterns and the and so. The book, I'm pleased to say, that the cloth has pretty much sold out. I think they did 1,500 cloth, and that sold out. And now it's in paper. It went into paper. Um, last October, and we've sold a couple thousand of the paper. So it's, in, in terms of sales, it's done well, and I think almost all of those sales are adoptions. And the pricing is so low that it's better for bookstores to buy directly from Oxford than to go to these warehouses that have used books because the bookstores get a, make a bigger profit by selling the new book than they do by selling the used book or by renting out the used book. So they, um, if you price your, your classroom adoption books low enough, they'll keep on selling. The new books will keep on selling. You won't be competing with your, uh, with your used books. Right. Well, it's definitely a nice little book. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, definitely accessible particularly for, I, I, would, I would argue, a large survey class uh, would particularly find this book attractive. Um, and with that, I just want to thank you, Dr. Hoffer, for joining us on New Books in American Studies. Um, we'd like to have you back at some point. Would you be interested in doing that? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Once again, um, the book title is Cry Liberty, the Great Stono Slave Rebellion of 1739. Um, Oxford University Press. Uh, pick it up today. Thank you, Dr. Hoffer. You're welcome.